Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Deli Davies, Senior Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs and Dean for Graduate Studies at University of Nebraska Medical Center. In that role, he's responsible for overseeing UNMC's six professional colleges, 14 graduate programs, and the Office of Postdoctoral Studies. Before joining the leadership ranks at UNMC 10 years ago, Dr. Davies was Chair of Pediatrics at Michigan State University for many years. I'm looking forward to talking to him about the journey academic medicine has been on during the pandemic and learning more about UNMC. Dr. Davies, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me, Rishi. Great to be here. Absolutely. It's uh, it's wonderful to see you after many years. And, you know, for our audience, I just want to share that we got together in person at UNMC a number of years ago. So it's a nice chance to catch up with you. Absolutely. Yeah, you helped inspire um, our whole e-learning program here at UNMC when you came and spoke to us with the work you were doing at the time, right, with um, Khan Academy. So that's right. It's so great how that's progressed onto osmosis and other activities for you. Well, listen, I know a little bit about your background, but our audience doesn't. So maybe you can share what got you interested in medicine and, and particularly pediatric infectious diseases, which, as you know, is, is an area that's near to my heart. So Rishi, I grew up in, I, I was born in Nigeria, um, and I grew up in a family of attorneys, actually, believe it or not. Uh, but I had a cousin who was raised by my dad, who was a physician, and he was sort of the, the go-to person in the family for all kinds of health issues. I just thought he was really cool. And he was my first real inspiration for medicine. But then, you know, I, I went to England and then subsequently went to medical school in Canada. And uh, during medical school, the people who inspired me the most were the pediatricians. And uh, initially, actually, I was doing internal medicine. And then I switched to pediatrics in those days. I just really enjoyed the fact that they seemed to really enjoy what they were doing. And I love children. So when I stopped into the Children's Hospital in Toronto, I just really fell in love with the specialty. Now, in terms of infectious diseases, there were two people, well, I guess three people who really inspired me to go into infectious diseases. One it was um, my master's mentor, Elaine Wong, who was a really superb ID doc at SickKids. And then uh, two giants of ID docs in Toronto, Dr. Zalison McGare, and unfortunately, Don Lowe, who's passed away a couple of years ago. And they were just so passionate about ID. They, they were so knowledgeable. They were great leaders. They were great team players. They, they invited me as a fellow in infectious diseases to really come join some really incredible studies. I learned so much from them. And so it's really especially that crosses all organ systems. And, you know, you can be a real doctor, do everything in infectious diseases. Plus, I love to travel internationally. And, you know, ID gives the opportunity to give back. Have you taken trips to Nigeria? I have. I've taken trips to Nigeria and I've taken trips to many other countries, all tied to ID. You know, I'm curious, a, a lot of folks do clinical practice, you know, in pediatric ID or other specialties, but never really get involved in admin or leadership. And so I guess two questions, like, how did you get involved? And then what inspired you to want to pursue that? Interestingly enough, when I finished training at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, I um, was recruited to go out to Calgary. And, you know, I had a master's in clinical epidemiology in those days. I was, I guess, some of the earlier waves of people who were trained in that, in that field. So I was recruited to help start a clinical research institute, where initially a clinical research unit, which I took to become a university-wide research institute. And so at each level, as I was there, being a smaller organization at the time, I kept on getting tapped to come help lead this uh, committee here or, you know, chair this uh, scientific review committee there. 
And as I, as I was tapped to take on more and more of these leadership roles, I realized that, you know, I had certain skills that I wanted to develop. So I started taking more professional development opportunities, uh, leadership classes, or maybe um, just doing certificates that helped me improve my skills. You know, I wanted to avoid something known as Peter's principle. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term, right? Peter's principle is the notion that you will keep getting promoted until you hit your level of incompetence. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I certainly don't buy into that, but I do believe that when you get promoted at every level, you're gonna find things that you don't know. I mean, things you'd never, you know, you'd never learned before. Even now in my career, I'm still learning things every day. And so I think just the idea that, you know, um, I can move away from personal goals to um, creating a vision and inspiring all the people around that shared vision and helping them develop their personal professional goals while also building an organization and organizational strength motivates me now. So it means less recognition for me as a person, but more basking in the reflected light of those whose success I can enable by the visions that we jointly move forward. So, you know, leadership is really exciting to me because again, it's really enabling and allowing other people to succeed and also watching something that you know you can create out of nothing become a reality. What is your take on on how leadership is taught or or not taught in med school and residency and fellowship? Like, do you feel like that you learned any of that in your formal training prior to joining admin roles and leadership roles? I think the short answer is no, formally. But I had some incredible role models who were leaders that I just basically watched and mentored and, and monitored myself after. Uh, and I mentioned a couple of names earlier: Alison McGee, Don Lowe. You know, it's interesting. These were two just, you know, they would consider themselves just ID docs. And, you know, but what I saw as a fellow coming from another lab where the leader was a micromanager, everybody was scared to do anything. They did not have much productivity in that lab. But once I stepped into the lab that was run by Alison McGee and Donlo, what I found was a vibrant, thriving lab where everybody was contributing. They were very productive, putting out abstracts and papers. And, you know, the thought crossed my mind, how is it that this lab is so productive? And this other lab that's also in the same city, also in a prestigious part of the organization, was so stagnant. And I realized it was all about how they handled people. They allowed people to be creative. They gave people freedom. They welcomed new ideas. You know, of course, it was a functional lab and, you know, research lab, but they still allow people to be creative and give them time to explore ideas. And I learned so much from them, just watching how they handled people, how they enabled people to succeed. You know, we would have grand deadlines or we may have maybe two weeks to put together a grant, but everybody came together. Everybody came together and wrote together and they would order food for us to eat. We would all stay late, but we were, honestly, I didn't even know that I was working. I was having so much fun and it was such an honor to be part of the team that I really just enjoyed it. So I've tried to embody that myself in my career to try and learn just by watching people. And I try to learn from different people and take nuggets of wisdom from so many people. Of course, I have a lot of formal training in the interim, but I think I've learned as much by watching and observing and being mentored by people as I have from any formal classes I could ever take. That makes a lot of sense. And certainly uh, has been my experience as well. I'm curious now to learn a little bit more about UNMC. You know, what, what do you think are some of the things that set it apart? What are some of the strengths of the program? So, you know, it starts with our mission, right? You always want to start with the mission. And our mission is to lead the world in transforming lives, to create a healthy future for all individuals and communities through premier educational programs, innovative research, and extraordinary patient care. Now, I will tell you that that is what we do. I mean, it sounds very 
similar to a lot of other organizations, but we really take that mission very seriously. You know, we have health six professional colleges, graduate studies programs, and we have institutes of cancer and developmental disabilities. You know, we've had 21 straight years of annual growth in our student body, 21 straight years. Uh, we, we now have almost 4,400 students. And these are all health professional students and research students. We're anchored in Omaha, but we take our mission to serve the communities very seriously in that we have campuses all over Nebraska, which is a 500 mile wide radius of urban and rural Nebraska. Our rural and uh, urban programs are among the best in the nation. We have several programs that are ranked in the top 10. Our rural and primary care programs have in the last several years almost exclusively been ranked in the top 10. Our nursing program is ranked in the top 10. Our PA program is highly ranked. I think it's number 15 right now or something. So we really take this uh, mission. And by the way, it's not about the rankings. It's really, it's all about the people, the quality of people from all over the country, from all the highest quality institutions and all around the world who work here and make this such a great place. You know, we also have something very unique in Omaha in that we have an extraordinarily supportive community. You know, I've lived in many communities. I have never lived in a community where the leaders, the community, and the philanthropic community are so supportive of the organization. They invest in us. You know, we have facilities that are second to none. We have core facilities, we have buildings, we have healing arts programs. Where you come to UNMC, we have um, some of the finest art by Del Chihuly. You might've heard of Del Chihuly, who is a glass artist. We have some of the finest art that is ever put anywhere in the nation. And so it's really not only just about doing, it's also about the way the whole program is structured to really heal and also to be fully engaged within the community. And we cannot do that without a, a community as support. You know, we have um, our research programs also have continued to grow. And now we have about $228 million worth of external research funding every year, which again, you know, it's really a testament to the fact that we have so much community support. And that support probably was strained or tested over the last couple of years with COVID. You know, what were some observations that you made as UNMC got through this pandemic? You know, Rishi, one of the things that struck me is how resilient our people are. You know, our students, our faculty, and our staff. I mean, there was a lot of stress. Obviously, many people lost relatives or friends. Many people themselves got COVID. But we came together. That's really what struck me was how the whole organization came together. We have so many people volunteering in the community, so many of our faculty, staff, and students, you know, and actually, because we have the Global Center for Health Security, we had a lot of the nation come to us for help. So we were the first place that Americans who came off the Diamond Princess cruise ship were evacuated to. We had the nation's state-of-the-art national quarantine centers, the only federally funded quarantine center in the nation. So we were able to take the first group of patients and learn very quickly a lot just from those patients as to, you know, a lot of things that helped inform the rest of the nation as to what we needed to do to care for COVID patients. You know, our Center for Global Health plus the College of Public Health developed so many resource and training materials on COVID that were distributed for free to the whole world, really, about how to manage COVID and just guidelines for quarantine, et cetera. You know, I, I really am especially proud of our faculty, staff, and students and how we pivoted from basically coming to work every day to learning, teaching, and working remotely. And, you know, I know every organization had to go through this, but I will tell you that our IT team, our, our faculty, our, um, you know, instruction designers, how they were able to quickly come up with tools for allowing our faculty to keep teaching and our students to keep learning 
making sure that we had all the different um, equipment that we needed to make sure that this was a success. And also just having our staff being able to work from home. Those were all lessons that we've learned. And a lot of those lessons have become permanent fixtures in our organization. You know, they're not going to go away. And, um, you know, we're going to continue to do a lot of the things that we were doing as a result of COVID. So it was really rough, obviously. It was really hard on a lot of people. And, uh, you know, it's changed the way we do a lot of things. But I could not be more proud of our faculty, our staff, and our students. That's awesome. It's great that you feel that way and that you were able to witness that. Do you sense that there's a change in how we're approaching faculty and students and staff with regards to the stress uh, that they might feel, the chronic stress? You know, sometimes people use the word moral injury or burnout, but uh, do you sense that there is a way that UNMC is managing that that is different now that we've had two years of COVID experience? Yeah, you know, Rishi, thanks for bringing that up. We know that burnout is a major problem. You know, 20% of the healthcare workforce has quit. Mm-hmm in the last year or two, just because of uh, the stress related to COVID. You know, we have invested a lot of resources, to be fair, not just during COVID, but certainly we expanded the resources during COVID. The first thing we sought to do is understand the needs of our faculty, staff, and students. And we wanted to meet them where their needs were. So we, we allowed flexible work schedules for most of our employees whose job did not need them to come to campus. You know, we granted a lot more paid emergency administrative leave, you know, 160 hours to our employees to use in cases of self-quarantine, quarantine of or care of a loved one. You know, maybe they have a child whose school was closed and they needed to be home. And, you know, a lot of scenarios like that that are related to COVID, we paid a lot of attention to facilitating those things so that we actually had, you know, surprisingly very few turnovers because of a lot of that. Probably more importantly, we activated and expanded our behavioral and wellness teams. So we have an assistant vice chancellor for wellness, and the team did a lot of town halls to listen, to respond, to to give tips on how to stay healthy and to reduce stress. We made a lot of resources available for stress prevention and management and wellness. And then we also did a lot of things on campus where we recognized the really stressful times. Rishi, you remember those times just before you had to do those anatomy exams or something, how stressful those could be during medical school. So, you know, we actually in the library had massage chairs. We had um, refreshments that, you know, students could go and, you know, get some refreshments and just de-stress before the exams. Um, And then, you know, we have, as I alluded to earlier, one of the world's best healing arts program. We actually have a symphony on campus. Wow. So we we just, it was actually for tweeters that just before COVID, about three years ago, we started a Nebraska medical symphony where we have faculty, staff, and students that are actually led by a choir director from University of Nebraska, Omaha Music Department. So a lot of faculty, staff, and students use that as a means of stress relief as well. So a lot of different things. And of course, we have um, 24-7 professionals available to talk to people in the case of, you know, maybe people were feeling depressed or suicidal or anything like that. So we really ramped up a lot of things to try and support our, our people here on campus. You know, it's it's obvious that you have a very student-centric view, like thinking very carefully through kind of how students like to learn and how they optimally learn and remember, as well as thinking about faculty needs. You yourself, interestingly, I came to learn and got your master's in healthcare management from Harvard School of Public Health a little bit later in your career. And so in a way, you've been a very much a, an exemplar of a lifelong learner. For those in our audience kind of planning out their postgraduate studies for themselves, what what impact would you say that particular degree had on your effectiveness as a leader? I would say that it had a profound impact on me in many ways. You know, quite honestly, before I 
stumbles, shall I say, on that program, I was going to do a traditional MBA like a lot of other uh, leaders do in healthcare. What really drew me to the masters at Harvard were a couple of things. First of all, it's a program designed just for physicians. And again, it's not that the traditional MBA may not cover a lot of things, but just being around other people who are already leaders, you know, I was able to learn a lot, not just from my professors, but from my colleagues, because they all came in with so many different skills that I brought to the table and I didn't bring to the table, some of which I brought and many of which I didn't. The second thing is that the program gave me a solid and practical foundation in the traditional business classes like you know, organizational behavior, stakeholder analysis, negotiations, financial management, et cetera, cost accounting. However, it also allowed me to delve deeper into our healthcare systems, understanding our health policies and payment systems, healthcare quality improvement, things that you don't get in a traditional business degree. And so for me, it was really the ability to uh, learn more about management and leadership and business principles, while at the same time understanding better how our healthcare systems work in the United States and around the world. And maybe the most important thing for me was also the profound friendships I developed during my time there, and not just with my classmates, but with the professors and uh, how I've been able to tap into many of them since I left. So yeah, it's definitely had a profound impact on me. You know, one thing that we love to do here is fill in knowledge gaps, uh, things that may be myths or misconceptions. Is there a topic that you think would warrant uh, a little bit of clarity, anything you'd like to educate us on that you think everyone ought to know? Well, you know, there are a lot of things I could pick, Rishi. Maybe one of the things that I learned during the pandemic or that the pandemic's taught all of us is that um, we need to be resilient and flexible organizations. We can no longer do things the way we did it. And uh, there's a term that I learned about, I guess, in the last couple of years, that we need to think locally. I'll say that again, locally. It's not globally. And it's not locally. It's locally. That means that we need to basically think and look globally for trends and patterns that can impact us. But we need to act locally to ensure that we're ready. Mm-hmm. You know, that readiness could be readiness for a pandemic. I mean, the moment we heard something was going on in China, we started to think right here on the mid-campus, well, what are we going to do? Because we know that a sneeze in China or London could cause an outbreak in Omaha very quickly. And I think if people don't think locally, they're going to be caught off guard on a lot of issues. So the pandemic is one thing, but thinking locally is also important if you want to lead the world. I mean, you've got to know what the emerging trends are. You've got to understand what you know, the signals are in terms of where our educational programs are going, where, you know, our clinical programs are going, where all the things that we do, the research, what are the key things that we need to be thinking about? So I think that people should try and get used to the term local and start to think locally and uh, look globally for trends and patterns and act locally to have an impact. That makes a lot of sense. And I think oftentimes with infectious diseases, the analogy is so easy to grasp because you think, you know, obviously these things don't respect boundaries and borders. My sense is that this is also true when you think about things like the war in Ukraine, when you think about climate change, you know, other topics that aren't necessarily infectious diseases, but still affect um, probably in a disparate way, some regions of the world more than others. And so I'm just curious, like, have you seen UNMC kind of take lead on some of these issues? And, And if so, like, what are some examples that you can share with our audience in terms of having a global view on these world topics that we're obviously bombarded with in the news every day. (laughs) Yeah. So I will tell you that even before we had the first case of COVID in the U.S., we sent a team to one of the cruise ships to try and understand 
what to expect here at the Med Center, well, in the United States, right? Because we wanted to have a better sense of what to expect. So that's still infectious diseases. However, I think that we, uh, the Med Center, are always looking for signals uh, around the world as to areas that we're not perhaps as focused on right now that we need to be more focused on. And um, a lot of those areas are tied to our academic programs. Uh, we want to be leaders uh, in some of the programs that we've started here, for example. And again, this ties into infectious diseases, but it's actually more health security. We're in the process of developing the very first health security fellowship program in the world. And we've applied to the ACGME for this, and hopefully we'll find out that we got it approved. We're doing a lot in health security right now. And we know that this is an area where we need to be resilient as a nation. And a lot of places teach about disaster management. They teach about biocontainment and infectious diseases. But there's nobody that's thinking about overall health security from a multi-layered, multi-dimensional point of view. And we're leading that. So it's always looking for signals. They are futurists, you know, that look for signals and try to predict what's going on. We want to be able to sort of create our own future here by um, leading and making sure that we're ahead of the curve. I think that's a, a really helpful framing. You know, thinking about health as a security issue helps to explain why it's not just a moral imperative, but also an economic imperative, a security imperative to make sure that in the case of COVID, the world gets vaccinated, for example, because disease anywhere can, as you said, you know, strike people elsewhere as well. And the same is true for issues of migration, issues of climate change, et cetera. So I think that's a really wonderful way of framing up the issues that are increasingly kind of upon us. Any final advice for folks in our audience? We have a lot of healthcare students as well as faculty that may be interested in learning what got you to where you are today and what can they do in their own careers to help uh, create an arc that's maybe similar in some way. I would say find your passion and pursue it. I, I believe I love what I do today as much as I did the first time I stepped into what I was doing. And a lot of that is tied to my just diving in and making sure that I fully interact with people, ask questions. There's nothing better than to really do what you enjoy and love doing, getting paid for it. If you really go to work every day, you look forward to going to work and you get paid for it. That's the best Having said that, it's important that you continue to build and expand on your repertoire of skills. I learn every day. You know, if, if I go to every meeting, my goal is to learn one thing. If I go to a, a conference, I want to make sure I come away with one or two takeaway points that I can learn. So have a mindset of learning continuously. You can, if you stop learning, then it's time to find something else. You know, continue to expand your repertoire of skills, leadership, seek out mentors, you know, seek out sponsors, and then be a mentor. Be a sponsor. Find some balance with your work. Rishi, just before we went on here, you told me about some new addition to your family. I mean, that's a beautiful thing, right? I think having things that balance your work will allow you to work for longer and it'll allow you to enjoy your work more. So you, the vacations, the breaks are critical. And then I would say, get ready. Get ready because there will be opportunities that will come and make sure that you pounce on them when they come. And that often comes wrapped as something that looks like hard work and it gets wrapped as something that looks like it's intimidating. But, you know, you're never ever gonna hit a home run if you don't swing. Babe Ruth missed a lot more <laughs> than he hit, but he's remembered for those hits that he got out of the park. 
Yeah, that's a very inspirational thought at the end there about Babe Ruth. <laughs> and I think that's a good point and maybe a wonderful one to end on is finding balance and, and bringing out the most in yourself kind of personally helps enrich your professional career as well. Listen, thank you so much for being with us today. That was uh, a marvelous chance to kind of get to know you and your career a little bit better. Thank you, Rishi. And thank you for the opportunity. And thanks for what you're doing. Uh, I think, um, you know, promoting important health topics like you're doing uh, with Raise the Line is really very important. Um, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot about is misinformation and malinformation and disinformation. And I think having programs where you can actually get credible information out to the public is critical. So thank you for what you're doing. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>